Welcome to episode 98 of The Climate Champions. Check out past episodes on theclimatechampions.com. I'm Lee Crevad, host of The Climate Champions. If you or someone you know is a climate champion, please let me know at crevadenergyinnovations.com. This podcast is being brought to you in part by the Department of Energy's Advanced Grid Research Group, whose purpose is to accelerate innovation in electric transmission and distribution technologies and create next-generation devices, software, and tools to help modernize the electric grid. This week, my featured guest is Albert Chung, Head of Global Analysis at Bloomberg NEF. BNEF provides clear perspective on global commodity markets and the disruptive technologies driving the transition to a low-carbon economy. Albert leads the global analyst team across renewable energy, storage, smart technologies, and advanced transport. He joined BNEF in 2009 to found the New Energy Smart Technologies Research Practice, covering smart grids, energy efficiency, energy storage, and advanced transportation. Coincidentally, the same time I founded the smart grid team at San Diego Gas and Electric to focus on those same topics. Welcome to The Climate Champions. I'm Lee Krivat, and I'm here with Albert Chung, Head of Global Analysis at Bloomberg NEF. Albert, welcome to The Climate Champions. Thanks for having me, Lee. Pleasure is mine. What was the motivating moment for you to engage in climate change mitigation? Lee, I, I thought about this a bit before coming on the show, and I can't pinpoint the first, the first moment, but I can remember a moment more recently, about three years ago, 8th of October 2018, which funnily enough was, that's actually my birthday which really re-energized me. And that was the day that the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which is the group of scientists that advises the UN, issued its special report on 1.5 degrees of global warming. And I was in hospital that day because we had, my wife and I had just had our twin girls five days before, and they were kept in because they were a little bit premature. So I was there five days later sitting in the coffee shop in the hospital and trying to read through this, this new report that had just come out. And of course, you're very emotional. And these are our first first two children. And this report said something that had never been said before, which is, if we want to avoid the worst effects of climate change, globally, we have to get to net zero emissions around mid-century. And having worked in climate for the best part of a decade at that point, that was the first time I think I'd ever heard the phrase net zero. I don't think anyone had used that phrase before around about October 2018, at least not in the popular vernacular. And I remember sitting there in the hospital thinking, this is going to change everything. Because up until this point, we've been talking about two degrees and we've been talking about getting emissions down by 60% or 80%. But suddenly the scientists are saying, there's a goal here that is getting to zero. That's everybody, every sector, every country getting to zero. So you can't talk about coal to gas switching anymore. You can't talk about, oh, well, some stuff's too hard so you can keep aviation or you can keep cement or whatever. Net zero means everything. And that moment has stayed with me. I think that's really been the, the sort of driving force behind a lot of the things we've seen now. I'm not the only one. That sparked Greta Thunberg and the school strikes, Fridays for the Future, Extinction Rebellion, and all the net zero commitments we've seen so far and around the world. You said you had twin girls. Is that your personal driver or is there more? It certainly focuses things for you. I think every parent who is in the climate area would say the same thing is that when they had kids or when they think about their kids, it really it focuses their minds on what the future could look like for the country they live in, the city they live in, the, the planet. I think also, fundamentally, I grew up in the 80s and 90s, and I'm originally from Hong Kong. And in that context, you know, as a child, I was very aware that 
life was getting better for people in Hong Kong at that time. It was a city that had come from poverty, had come from nothing, and it was kind of a really optimistic time, although with some political turmoil, obviously, at the, at the time. I think like a lot of other people in different parts of the world, you thought the world was generally getting better. You thought things were getting better over the sort of general arc of history. And I think climate change is one of those things, for our generation, I would argue, is the thing that makes you realize, hold on, there's a big hole in this hypothesis that things are generally getting better for humans around the world. And maybe for previous generations, it was something else. It was nuclear war. I think that there's this big question mark around, if you think the world is going to be a better place, then we have to deal with climate change. We have to figure out how to tackle that problem. When you meet people that don't understand the data or impact of climate change, how do you convince them that they should be concerned about it? I think that people can see it happening now. I think that's a really good question because I think you would have answered it differently three years ago. I think now everybody can see it happening. So I don't meet that many people who at least need it explained to them. What I observe more is that people feel guilty. Like they think it's their fault. They think they're not doing enough personally and I need to recycle more or whatever it is. I try to be relatively straight with people. I try to explain that it is real what they're seeing and it's actually going to get a whole lot worse. But the important thing is to not feel guilty because guilt is paralyzing. Like nobody likes guilt. It kind of stops you in your tracks. But rather to think about the opportunities because the energy transition should be the biggest wealth creation opportunity of our lifetimes. If you think about renewable energy, electric vehicles, hydrogen, all the jobs, all the investment, I try to, and this is, you know, even with friends and family, I try to frame it less about sacrifice and guilt and not doing things you want to do, but more about looking at the things that could be opportunities, the things that could energize and create jobs and investment and all the rest of that. How do you and how does BNEF help to mitigate climate change? So BNEF is the, we think, the world's leading provider of data and research on the, on the low carbon transition globally and, and on commodities markets. So we're about 200, 250 people worldwide now looking at the low carbon transition. And I head up the research team. So we're looking at the technologies, the policies, the companies involved in the energy transition. And we're producing the analysis and the forecasts that are read by most of the major players. So as you know, Lee, because you have been one of them, energy companies, utilities, renewable energy players, banks, technology companies, these folks are all relying on our research to figure out how they're going to, going to navigate the energy transition. They're using our models, our forecasts in, in some way, shape or form for their own strategic work. Are we helping mitigate climate change? We're, we're not deploying any technologies. We're not doing any R&D of, of our own, but we're really trying to help create transparency about the opportunities that, that exist and also the risks that exist. Because fundamentally, we think that vast majority of companies in the world need to understand this and will have some role in enabling the low carbon transition. And so Providing the information, providing the data, the research to support that learning is, is really what we're trying to do. And we're also part of what Bloomberg writ large is doing on climate. I don't want to do too much Bloomberg advertising today. Bloomberg, beyond BNEF, is developing ESG offerings of data, scores, and analytics. We have Bloomberg Green, which is the news platform that's dedicated solely to climate, which I think is a really phenomenal product. And of course, Mike Bloomberg himself, who devotes a lot of his philanthropic efforts to fighting climate change and plays a role at the UN. As BNEF, we're also involved in all of those initiatives and trying to help support them and drive them forward. Although we're not out there deploying technologies and providing financing for, for projects or anything like that, we are really trying to have an impact and I, and I hope that we are. How has the pandemic impacted you and Bloomberg? The pandemic hasn't necessarily impacted what we're doing on climate and energy transition. BNF has always been focused on the energy transition since we were founded 15, 16 years ago now. I think some things have changed, though. 
one impact has been in the financial markets. We'd already seen more and more capital looking to reduce its exposure to fossil fuels and gain exposure to the energy transition, gain exposure to sustainable instruments, sustainable debt, renewable energy companies, ESG-themed ETFs, etc. It's a real shift in, in capital allocation. COVID massively accelerated that. You saw this shocking downturn in, in oil and gas. Specifically, you saw a boom in, in renewable energy stocks throughout 2020. Now, some of that has calmed down. Oil prices have recovered. But that really accelerated this need for, for data and research, you know, really reliable data among financial institutions in particular. So the banks, the asset managers, the asset owners, and that's something that's really not gone away. So I think in terms of our focus as a, as a research house, that's something we're trying to lean into is understanding how we can help those players more and provide more data and research really tuned to their needs. Can you talk about your prior background? Yeah, sure. So I studied engineering here in the UK, which is where I am, and briefly in the US as well. I was all set to be an engineer doing electrical information engineering. I actually interned at Sharp back in the day doing work on mobile phone touchscreens before the iPhone and all that. Believe it or not, Sharp actually thought they were going to be the leader in mobile phones. They had the best camera tech, they had the best LCD screens, etc. So it's kind of funny how that stuff turns out. And I also spent some time working. I spent a year during my master's working one of the Formula One motor racing teams. And I was an engineering intern. My job was basically writing code to analyze or to simulate different aspects of the racing car. I spent about nine months doing that with another student trying to solve what at the time was an unsolvable problem in car simulation. <laughs> so we spent nine months and it basically concluded, yeah, you, you can't solve this. So that was a, a long <laughs> nine months of my life. So yeah, in my parallel life, I would have been an engineer. I could well have been a utility engineer, but somehow ended up as a clean energy analyst instead. Can you talk about the setbacks in your career? So I can think of one setback that's, uh, that was very clear, and um, which was actually, again, right at the beginning of my career. So after I decided I, I wasn't going to be an engineer, I thought I'd try out consulting. So I joined one of the strategic consulting firms, one of the big ones, because I thought that would be a good way of gaining some quick experience across different businesses. And this was right at the height of the financial crisis. About three months in, they decided to just get rid of all the new people. <laughs> so after deciding I wasn't going to be an engineer, after being a consultant for three months, I was kind of back out on the street. But that was really, I think, what prompted me to think about what was important. And that's actually how I found new energy finance, as it was back in the day. At the time, a startup founded by a guy called Michael Liebreich, who had a real vision around the future of energy, and joined that company as an intern. And I never looked back. That's now, I guess, 12 years ago, it became Bloomberg NEF. That setback, I think, set me on, on a really good track to something where, you know, I really have no regrets at all about that. Can you talk about the successes you're most proud of? I hate talking about successes because it's kind of like, it feels very weird to say, oh, I'm really chuffed about this. Do you have this word chuffed in, in America? I think it's a Britishism. <laughs> oh. No. Anyway, it means very pleased with yourself about stuff. It feels strange to talk about it. One thing I am proud of in the professional world, I'm, I'm really pleased with how BNEF has become a real platform for people to do their best work. Since we became part of Bloomberg, which is now something like a dozen years ago, it was no longer a startup. And there have been deliberate decisions to be made over the years about how you steer the company and how you structure it and how you, you manage teams and so on. And I'm really pleased that it's, it still is, as it was back then, a platform for, for smart, independent, motivated people to do really good work and be part of something bigger. I mean, we, we have analysts who are just one or two years into their career and just doing amazing, groundbreaking research, really impactful work having impact well beyond their years. We have some folks who've been around 10 years, myself, and some of them are real thought leaders in their industry. So I do think at the core, 
we are a knowledge business. And so what matters is that you give people a real place to express themselves and grow and be good at what they do. So that, that's something I'm really proud of because you, you do have to create the environment for that to be successful. And if you, if you just tell everyone the answer, then you're just going to get the answer back that you already knew. But if you really create an environment for others, then I think better things happen. Yeah, I'm, I'm really proud of that. In my career, my biggest highlights are because of great teams that I was lucky to be a part of. Yeah. It sounds like you've put a platform in place where you can have great teams and empower great teamwork. That's right. I mean, that, that's exactly what you remember from the, the happy times at work is you remember the teams, you remember the people that you interacted with, you remember how much you enjoyed that. And I actually think the teams that work well, where you enjoy each other and you, you learn from each other, have a bigger impact. They do better work. People push each other further and they support each other. And that can be a real, a real multiplier, I think. Given the great analysis you do, I'd be very interested in your view of the future 20, 30, 40 years out. So I, I think there's a few different ways to answer this question. There's the kind of analytical view, which is the future of energy and the industries. And then there's the sort of what does life feel like in the era of climate change? In terms of the future of energy, let's just start there. We just published our new energy outlook for 2021. It's just gone out a couple of weeks ago. And it charts three different pathways for the world to reach net zero by mid-century. And we went into that exercise saying, let's look at three different technology paradigms. And what you realize is you can actually shape it different ways. There's so, so much uncertainty about the path to net zero that there is actually, you know, there are a range of different futures. So some of them rely more on, on hydrogen. Some of them rely more on carbon capture. Some of them rely more on nuclear. So those are the three big technologies that we varied across the scenarios. But all of them require absolutely massive amounts of renewable energy, renewable power. The power system just grows enormously over the next 30 years globally. The grid becomes this incredibly important backbone for decarbonization. There's electrification across transport and buildings and, and industry. And in all of these scenarios, we've got to go a lot faster than we are today. So just to give you an idea, today we're tracking about $500 billion annually in new investment into the energy transition. That's money going into renewable projects, money going into electric vehicles and charging infrastructure and hydrogen and so on. Half a trillion, 500 billion, but half a trillion dollars. We need to get to somewhere around three to five trillion per year and sustain that to 2050. So that's a monumental uplift from what I think is already a good number. You know, half a trillion is not a small amount of money, but we need to be 5X, 10Xing that over the next few years to really get towards towards net zero. I guess that's my <laughs> that's that's the sort of energy answer. Are we going to make that investment? Is it going to work? Are we going to avoid the worst of climate change impacts? I would love to hear your thoughts as well, Lee. I'll give you my thoughts. First of all, I think we have to make our peace that climate change is here to stay. It's going to be the defining physical experience of our lifetimes. Hotter summers, more extreme weather. In my case here in the UK, more flooding for sure, which we've already seen over the last few days. But there are still very divergent futures in front of us. There's a future where our streets are quiet because the combustion engines are gone. The air is clean because we're not burning dirty fuels. There's still beauty in the world in terms of biodiversity and snow-capped mountain peaks and beaches that aren't underwater and things like that. And there's climate wealth in terms of the opportunities that have been created to create new jobs, whether it's in manufacturing wind turbine blades or you know, generating hydrogen. And then there are alternate futures where the worst effects come to pass and we have more drought, more famine, resource conflict, mass migration, security crises, etc. And I think we have to kind of be able to hold both of these futures in our heads as we do our work. Because 
There's no magic threshold at 1.5 degrees or two degrees where everything is terrible or everything is great. Those are just numbers that we've picked to aim for. But in reality, every little thing we can do can bend the curve away from one of those futures and towards the other one. I think it's important that we hold both of those futures in our heads and do everything we can to move towards the one that we prefer. I agree. We're already seeing very real changes in the climate. Most people are being impacted, at least in some way, and some folks very significantly. And it's going to get a lot worse. We can't change our trajectory on a dime. So the question is, how bad is it going to get, even when the world really understands how bad it is? My fear is that we won't take truly urgent, all-out action. We won't make that 10x or even maybe the 20x investment that'll be needed until it gets very, very bad for many, many people. We're just too reactive. And to be honest, I'm afraid of how bad it needs to get to drive the changes we need. It's become very political. That's really interesting. I mean, I, I think that some of the worst scenarios are becoming less and less likely, even as some of the best scenarios are also becoming less and less likely. Because on the best scenario side, we're running out of time. I think uh, it's by 2028, if I'm not wrong. Certainly within this decade, we will have used up the budget for 1.5 degrees if we continue on the current trajectory. So that's not a long time at all. But also on the worst scenarios side, we can see renewables is now winning the race. You know, in the power sector, we can see electric vehicles winning the race. So you can see the cone is going to start to narrow, the cone of possibilities. I share your fear, but I also feel that some of the, you know, hopefully there's some optimism in there in terms of the worst scenarios becoming less likely. On good days, that's what gives me hope, that we have a lot of the technology that we need to get out of this. And technology is improving all the time. I think as a world, we're at an inflection point. We can leverage our technology to really help people have better lives and solve the threats facing the world. But on the other hand, we're more divided the issues seem to be getting worse, and we don't really have the urgency to solve them. So it really depends on the day for me how I feel about this. I couldn't agree more. Actually, so one useful corollary, I think, is in the, the response to the, to the COVID-19 pandemic over the last year, where one of the things that I think has been most surprising has been this idea that believing the science about the vaccines and medicines and so on became a matter of debate, became a, a matter of personal opinion that divided people. And if you, if you told me that a few years ago, that there's, there's going to be a pandemic, um, they're going to invent a vaccine in one year, I would have said, that's amazing. Everyone will take it and we'll be good to go. That'll be a, an absolutely amazing result. And of course, what we've seen is not that, is like a lot of people doubting that. And so, yeah, on the pessimistic side of the ledger is human nature is to not necessarily always accept the obvious solution that's in front of you, let's say. With all the damage to people's health and their death, and so many people still not taking advantage of the solutions available, that doesn't inspire a lot of hope. And my next question for you is how has your perspective been changed based on what you've seen during the pandemic? Is there good news there too? So right at the beginning of the pandemic, when it went global, sometime around February, we gathered all our senior analysts around. We said, okay, let's focus on the question. What's the impact of the pandemic gonna be on the energy transition? And at first we thought, oh, there'll be no impact. And then we started seeing solar and wind factories shutting down and the construction projects shutting down because of social distancing, people didn't get to work and things like that. So we started putting out scenarios saying, hey, if this goes on for a long time, there's going to be a real slowdown in deployment and so on. And in the end, Lee, we were completely wrong. 2020 ended up being a better year for renewables, for EVs, for the transition than we'd even expected before the pandemic which maybe tells you something about our, the ability to forecast things, but um, <laughs> supply chain issues were overcome very quickly. Factories came back online. 
There were a bunch of subsidy deadlines that drove even more project build than we expected. And then you had this massive influx of stimulus programs from some of the early countries that decided to move green stimulus within 2020. I think we counted almost a trillion dollars now of green stimulus that's been announced and approved by countries. Some of that post-2020 into this year. All of that money flowing into renewables and electric vehicles and hydrogen and energy efficiency and building renovation programs and things like that. And at the same time, during the pandemic, we saw the EU really commit to its net zero goal. The UK had already done it the year before. We saw China and then Japan and then Korea all commit to net zero within about four weeks of each other, which is an incredible period of time. We saw Joe Biden get elected and starting to move policy forward in the US. So I think it's just been a really optimistic time, actually. And you have this cognitive dissonance because it's been really tough for us all personally, you know, working from home, not seeing our friends and family and colleagues, but at the same time, actually feeling quite optimistic about the speed and the direction of transition because we've seen all of these things move forward. And I'm not saying it's all completely, you know, the glass isn't completely full. I can give you some of the glass half empty stuff. Like there's a lot of stimulus money not going to green stuff, but also going to dirty industries. A lot of the climate commitments we see from countries are still not enough to get us towards two degrees, let alone 1.5. So although there's an uplift, the uplift isn't enough. But the momentum during the pandemic has been absolutely in the right direction. And I think that is not necessarily what would have happened without the pandemic. I don't think we can take for granted that all of that would have happened without the pandemic. If people want to help, what can they do? So I've said this before at one or two events, careers events and things like that. And I'll, I'll say it again here. I think you have three lives or maybe three roles in your life. You have your professional life, which is your life as a worker. It's what you do for work and it's who you work for. You have your consumer life. You are a consumer and a buyer, a user of goods and services. And that is about what you choose to consume and how you consume it, or how you spend your money. And then your third life is as a citizen, which is kind of how you vote, how you take part in your community, how you show up to your friends and family. And I think my piece of advice is to look at all three of the lives that you lead, your professional life, your consumer life, and your citizen life, because we all have agency. Some of us are more privileged than others and have more choice than others. And I think people who listen to your podcast there'll be a whole spectrum of people who have more choice or less choice and more privilege and less privilege. But everyone has some agency. And I think the best thing that we all can do is to look at those three lives that we lead and be deliberate about them and think about how does climate impact the way you lead each of those three lives. Do you have any questions for me? I do, actually. So you've had a great career in the energy sector and you're, as I understand it now, working with some really interesting folks in some really interesting companies. And you've kind of worked through clean tech 1.0 and now it's clean tech 2.0 or climate tech or however you want to call it. I'd love to hear what you think has changed or what's different now. In 2009, I gave the SDG&E leadership team a presentation. I showed them how fast solar was growing and would likely continue to grow and that we'd likely be seeing electric vehicles and they would actually sell and be successful and they'd have large batteries and a capability to charge and even one day discharge. At the end of those presentations, I had engineering leaders in the organization come up to me telling me that there was no way it could happen. They felt the grid couldn't take that much solar, and we're not talking anywhere near the solar we have now, and that the transformers couldn't charge electric vehicles at the 3.7 kilowatt rate I was trying to get them ready for. They told me it was all science fiction. But really, I wasn't predicting the future. The vehicles were already being revealed with timelines, and the solar was already being installed with great business cases and falling prices. The trend lines and supporting data was clear, and actually, I got it wrong. 
I underestimated the solar by a long shot. And I know I just finished saying we aren't going fast enough. So even though it is going fast now, it isn't fast enough. But at least now, it isn't science fiction. Regular people are buying EVs and loving them. Solar, wind, and energy storage are affordable. People know the technology works and that there are alternatives to the way we've always done things. Weather events are happening constantly, and significant investment is coming to climate technology. So it is much better. That's so interesting. I, th- I think it takes a lot of courage to trust the trend curves because there's always a reason why the trend curve might not play out. And there's always some rationale that says, no, you can't break that cost barrier or it won't adopt that quickly. There's always a reason. We go back over our forecasts from time to time. And we oftentimes actually, we find that especially the solar industry blows past our forecasts because there's always some upside surprise. So in a way, you have to trust the trend curve. And then the truth can be even better than what you thought. Hopefully that continues to be the case. And on that optimistic note, I'm going to wrap this up with a wrap. The special report from the IPCC was the first time Albert had seen the net zero term on his birthday, 8th of October, 2018. As a new dad five days before, you wanted to be their hero, so it re-energized you to help us get to net zero. BNEF is focused on research and data transparencies. We're going to need that to get under 1.5 degrees. BNEF doesn't finance projects for the energy transition, but it helps guide other that's its low-carbon mission in a parallel life you could have been a utility engineer but losing your first consulting gig was great for your career hong kong's one of those places that may soon be getting much wetter but when albert was growing up the arc of time was getting better there's a move to investment in sustainability following new rules capital wants to reduce its exposure to fossil fuels the bnef platform with great teams it is stuffed albert didn't like talking about it because it made him feel People understand we need renewables to be built. Let's get going on taking action. There's no time for guilt. Don't let it be paralyzing. The stress will mess your health. With technology, there's opportunity for building climate wealth. If we're going to make a difference, we have to have the nerve. Everything we do matters if we want to bend the curve. If Albert knew there'd be a pandemic a few years before, he'd be shocked to hear that people wouldn't take the cure. The best climate changes are fading, but as we add each technology arrow, the worse is better too. The cone of possibilities is getting more narrow. As citizens, we have community, our friends, kids, husbands, wives. We're also consumers and professionals. We must take action in those three lives. In 2009, that's when our clean grid journey had begun. It was a great conversation. Thank you, Albert Chung. That was incredible. That was amazing. (laughs) I don't know how you do that. I find myself paraphrasing Albert's take on the COVID vaccine almost daily. First, two years ago, I would have found it difficult to believe that a virus would kill almost four and a half million people and infect over 200 million. But it would be even more difficult to believe that multiple companies would successfully develop vaccines within a year that very successfully immunized people and even more successfully protected them from hospitalization and death. But the most difficult thing to believe, and I often still can't, is that, at least in the United States, almost half the people that have access to the vaccine are electing not to get it. While technology may answer the bell on climate change, 
if saving ourselves requires believing, sacrifice, and change, we might not make it. If you have comments or questions about the podcast, visit my website at crevatteenergyinnovations.com and drop me an email. I would love to hear from you. And if you're enjoying the Climate Champions podcast series, please subscribe. Rate it five stars if you're an Apple user and tell your climate-concerned friends about it. Albert felt chuffed, I hope I'm using the term right, bragging and taking some of the credit for his team's success at BNEF, and I'm certain everyone there contributes. But great teams don't just happen. It takes leadership, tools, and great people committed to a common goal. In this case, to help mitigate climate change. Mm-hmm.